Hello and welcome to Learning from Legends with me, Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining me. Today, we talk to the Chief Economist at Domain, Dr. Nicola Powell, and we ask what is happening to property prices and will they really fall by more than 20%? If they will, when do they start falling? And then JLL's Michael Green tells us what office block developers will be building to help workers leave home to work in the office again. That's the show. Let's kick off with Dr. Nicola Powell. Well, I'm joined by the Chief of Research and Economics at Domain, Nicola Powell. Dr. Nicola Powell, let's give her a full title. Thanks for coming to the program. Hello, thanks for having me. So Nicola, there's lots of I guess, anxiety around uh, the moment linked to uh, real estate. Some people are anxious about house prices continually going up and people missing out at auctions and open house sales. On the other hand, you've got predictions of big uh, price uh, decreases, uh, interest rates rising, APRA getting involved, telling banks to lend less, all those sorts of things going on right now. So let's just try and drill down to what you see in your very accurate crystal ball, because you're a doctor. <laughs> well, I think we all put our, our best uh, foot forward, don't we, when we're trying to predict where um, Australia's favourite sport is going, and that is yes, the sure. market. Um, you know, we all watch it very uh, intently, and I think... You know, it's been such a, a an 18 months in terms of an upswing, um, it, you know, as a result of the pandemic. You know, when we have a look, we released our recent price series only last week. So that was on the September quarter. And there were some really interesting trends now starting to unravel, which are different to what we were seeing earlier in the year. And I think that helps us to provide that insight into where 2022 will go in terms of uh, property price. When you have a look across that combined capital city uh, house price, they rose three and a half percent over the September quarter. And we've got that combined capital city house price now nearly, it's almost at a million dollars, which is just a remarkable figure to have mm. as our combined capital city. But overall, it's the fastest rate of growth on record. It's up nearly 22% over the year. Obviously, it's, it varies depending upon the city. We've seen some cities have much stronger rates of growth. But I think what we've seen over the last year is really um, uh, an extraordinary performance of houses compared to units. Houses have grown about three times faster than units. But as I mentioned, there were some uh, changes that we saw um, in terms of trends over the September quarter. Um, and we've started to see that the pace of growth now has eased. We saw it over the June quarter and it was confirmed again over the September quarter. So it shows that we're losing some of that momentum. Um, so what we're expecting moving forward into 2022 is that we are expecting prices to continue to rise, but they are going to be at a much slower rate. Um, I think, you know, we're still gonna have a very low interest rate environment. And, you know, we're of the view that the RBA uh, won't lift those rates until we have consistent annual wage growth around three to four percent and that core inflation sustainably within its kind of target band of that two to three percent. So it does imply that those interest rates are going to remain low for some time and they may start rising late into 2022 or in uh, to 2023. I think the interest rate move higher is going to be earlier than that was initially uh, anticipated, which was 2024. I think we're looking late 2022 or 2023. Well, in that context, you know, that was a good summary of what you're seeing out there. I'd like to throw into the mix the 
forecast from Chris Joy from Coolabar Capital, who's a very good forecaster historically. And he thinks that once interest rates start to rise, <clears throat> it could set off a 20% fall in house prices across the country. What's your feeling about that pretty big call? So it is a big call and he does have a really good track record in terms of forecasting around property prices. And, you know, I did have a dive into what they released. Um, and I think, you know, overall, um, high household debt to income ratio makes borrowers very sensitive to any interest rate changes. And I think that is why we're all, you know, uh, discussing when we think interest rates are going to, to rise, because we are highly indebted as Australians. And we know that interest rate changes are a key driver of housing market turns. And, you know, when you have a look at downturns in more recent times, they have become more severe over time. If we have a look at that 2017 to 2019 uh, downturn, we saw house prices across the combined capital cities drop about 8%. That's greater than we saw during uh, the GFC. And obviously, APRA uh, was highly involved in that, you know, we had those macro prudential constraints on lending. And we started to see that come into play now, you know, we've, we've now got a move uh, on lending, which came into fruition on the 1st of November. But I think when I had a look at the, the modelling, I think, you know, there's things to keep in mind when you're looking at a, a model that is predicting a 15 to 25% drop. Um, what the model does is it, um, from my understanding, is it has it comes from the assumption that the RBA are going to normalise the cash rate. So that means lifting interest rates by about 100 basis points or more, but it is assuming that these inc increases in interest rates are going to occur rapidly. And by rapidly, I mean within a 12-month period. So that is a shift, and it's going to be uh, probably a bit of a rude awakening for those that haven't experienced an interest rate hike before, because there will be some Australians out there that haven't. Um, and that's where that model has come and with the output of a 15 to 25% uh, decline. Where our view sits is I'm not convinced that we will see the RBA move this quickly. I think what the RBA will do is make uh, move more slowly in terms of its interest rate hikes. Um, because they understand the impact that that could have on house prices and the flow on impact on the wealth effect and the spending within the economy. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. And, and I interviewed Chris um, yesterday um, for this week's uh, podcast, and he basically said the same thing, that if, they, if the Reserve Bank raises slower than is expected, then the house price fall could be a lot less. And that's a, a view that he totally agreed with. Let's go to another interesting trend we've seen. This is um, regional property prices. I think the last ones I saw actually rose faster than capital cities, but maybe I'm wrong. But certainly the shift to the regions and the, therefore the demand and the price action um, is quite historically significant, I, I would presume. Absolutely. And there was a period of time there we saw our regionals outpaced in terms of growth at the combined capital cities. So I think that is a huge milestone for our regional markets. And we have seen this spotlight um, into uh, regional Australia. Our recent house price report has also shown the same trend as what we've seen in our combined capital cities, that pace of quarterly growth is, is beginning to ease. But even that being said, it's the strongest annual rate of growth in 17 years. So we really have seen an uptick in prices. 
it is a bit of a different outcome across the different regional areas, across the different states and territories. We've got the strongest rates of regional growth in regional New South Wales, regional Vic and regional Tasmania. And what's interesting, you know, those are the three states that are most impacted by the affordability issues associate, associated with their respective capital cities. They have high house prices in that their respective capital cities. We have a look towards, say, regional New South Wales. We have seen that pace of quarterly growth ease. It's dropped by one fourth um, compared to the prior quarter. But again, you know, it's the strongest rate of growth in you know roughly 17 years. Regional New South Wales up almost 19% over the past year. The one I found interesting was regional Victoria. We're seeing pretty consistent quarterly growth. I would probably say that's the one that it's eased marginally over the quarter. So I think there's still lots of momentum in that regional Victoria market. And we know that in regional Victoria, that's where we have seen a bit of a, a, a big shift and a big movement of residents leaving um, the city of Melbourne into uh, regional Victoria. Um, and you know we're seeing the strongest rates of growth in 18 years in, in regional Victoria. And the other one I did wanna mention was regional Tasmania. I mean, Hobart has got record high prices. Um, it's gone from one of the most affordable to now certainly not being one of the most affordable. Um, and we're seeing that impact in regional Tasmania as well. And we're still seeing accelerating growth in house prices in regional, regional Tas. Mm. So we've got the, the, the dem demographic shift out of expensive capital cities to the regions. Throw on top of that the work from home trend, which has escalated since the coronavirus. Do you think this tr this trend, albeit maybe at a slower rate, is going to be something that we will see entrenched in the real estate characteristics of Australia? I think partly. Um, what the pandemic has done is really created the greatest social and lifestyle uh, change since post World War. Um, it is global. Um, you know, we're seeing these trends come out in other markets. So, for example, in the UK, the same thing is happening. People are moving into the country. They're moving into, they want larger homes. The same thing is happening here. Um, so I do think, in a way, it's going to leave a bit of a legacy. And I think the difference is um, Australian migration patterns have changed as a result of the pandemic because we've seen um, we're already seeing a migration away from our more expensive capital cities prior to the pandemic. And that's important to note. So we were seeing that flow of people away from Sydney into those regional markets since around 2015, it was gaining traction. What the pandemic did is it accelerated those trends. And I think, you know, in some of these areas, we've got people moving who are prime in their working years. And that's the difference. You know, it's not um, pre or, or retiree aged uh, Australians, you know, moving into, say, let's, there's an example, Southeast Queensland, which we know is a retirement haven for, for those in their, their early or in their retirement years. We've got people moving prime in their working years. And that is a real impact of what we've seen as a result of COVID. And, you know, I, I look at the impact that COVID has had and the ability and the, and the proof, you know, the proof is in the pudding, you know, we're able to work effectively and efficiently from home. And I think that we won't revert back to five days in the office. I think we're gonna be hard pressed to convince a millennial where they can purchase an affordable house in regional Australia and perhaps only go into the city two days a week the interesting trend that what that is going to do is it's going to increase the, you know, the sweet spot around our, our city working hubs. 
you know, traditionally say it's 150 kilometers of, you know, that commutable distance, maybe that's going to push out slightly. Maybe it means more people are, are, will go, okay, I don't mind doing that slightly longer commute. I think it's opened the doors for some in terms of affordability. It means that they can relocate elsewhere, get more value for money, get that Australian dream. And I think we're going to be hard pressed to, to, to change that view. And I think some of it in part will reverse because we've seen in some regional areas, we've seen such a demand in the rental market. And what that says is it's temporary. It's almost like people have gone on a bit of a gap year, you know, to escape COVID, to escape those lockdowns, um, to live in a less dense area. Part of that will reverse, but I think we've seen such strong demand in the sales market. We've seen significant rates of growth in some of our regional markets. That says that it's not temporary. That says that it's a permanent uh, move mm. from your location. Yeah, it, so listening to you, Nicola, makes me think that this is going to be good for real estate prices in places like the, the Blue Mountains and Central Coast. Wollongong and Lawara, because it's, it's it circles Sydney. You've got uh, in Victoria, I think part of the reason why the, the Melbourne thing is the, the little capital cities like Bendigo aren't far from Melbourne via train and uh, you, you go down to Geelong. It's just not difficult to get into Melbourne from there. I, I can see that as being really good for uh, real estate prices. Do you agree with that, that the scenario is going to be good for those sort of satellite areas? Absolutely, 100% agree. I mean, we've seen strong rates of growth. And even, you know, when you look towards, say, Warrnambool down in, in Victoria, that's yeah. seen such strong levels of demand. We're seeing it in our buyer demand indicator in prices. Mornington Peninsula, we, you know, we know that's always been popular for, you know, the, the extra, you know, beach pad of, of uh, city dwellers. Some of the rates of growth that we've seen, it's the top, it has some of the top performing suburbs in Australia in the Mornington yeah. Peninsula. It's been an extreme rate of growth and change in dynamics of their housing market over the past, you know, 18 months. Yeah, I, I did a holiday at um, the Mornington Peninsula not long ago and I'm surprised how good it, it was as a, as a destination. It's not far from Melbourne at all, so lots of people would like to work from home in that area. And just before I get into, I want to focus on Brisbane because in many ways Brisbane has been neglected in terms of price rises until about a year or so ago. And I was always asking people like you and others, you know, when is Brisbane going to take off? Um, but before we get to Brisbane, let's go further up New South Wales coast. Is Byron Bay going to become a bit like Bitcoin? Because like, everybody <laughs> wants to be in Byron Bay. The price rises have been unbelievable. So someone who's bought in there is either going to be uh, really regretting overpaying or would you, or do you suspect it's going to be like a Bitcoin suburb in the sense that there'll always be someone who wants to be in Byron Bay, and the price rises they might slow down. They'll always be on the rise. So we're already starting to see the rate of growth ease in Byron. Um, you know, Byron has just seen something that is just unbelievable. I mean, it goes in the same bucket as the Mornington Peninsula. If I was going to pick two yeah. areas really surprised me in terms of the pace of growth it would be Byron and it would be some of those suburbs in the Mornington Peninsula um, look I think we're already starting to see some of the heat come out of the market in in Byron and I think what's interesting in terms of what's happening is it's having very much a flow and effect in some of those neighboring areas like Ballina for example which is much more affordable because you know when you look at these areas that are being driven really by demand from um, Sydney siders mostly people from Melbourne that have much more um, you know they have higher paid jobs it's the locals that 
get priced out of the market. And I think, you know, that is a, a severe issue for areas like that. And particularly when you look at their rental markets as well, um, it, you know, it, this is something that, you know, governments really need to address because for locals trying to purchase in these areas, it is impossible, really. Yeah. All right, let's go to uh, Brisbane now. Um, as I say, it, in the past, it's been lagging. Are you seeing a demographic uh, shift into Brisbane? And I, I can remember watching that, that program, Love It or List It, and every time Andrew Winter went to Brisbane, because he's a, a, a Queenslander nowadays, uh, he always talked about the price difference between you know, Melbourne and Sydney and what you could buy in Brisbane was quite extraordinary. Lovely houses, big backyards, swimming pool, not far from the CBD. Is the is the country waking up the fact that there's very good value in Brisbane and that Brisbane uh, house prices taking off? Uh, yeah, they. I mean, I think people are realizing how um, affordable homes are in Brisbane, and even you know, I, I'd open that to Southeast Queensland as well. Yeah. Affordability is really there. We've seen high levels of demand. So, for example, we track things like views per listing. Um, we have a buyer demand indicator as well. Um, all of those areas are kind of those, it's it's really hot along the coastal area of Southeast Queensland, you know, those beachside suburbs. But even when you look towards Greater Brisbane, you know, we have got record high house prices now in Brisbane. Um, they nudged over 700,000 in terms of a median for the first time over the September quarter. So, you know, quite the milestone for Brisbane. But even that being said, you know, 700,000 versus what Sydney is now, which is almost at 1.5 million dollar median house price mm. um, you know it's, it's less than half so um, it does offer affordability and you can see why people are opting to relocate and you know we were discussing earlier about people prime in their working life greater brisbane is a really good example of people who are prime in their working life they are the ones moving internally from other areas of australia into greater brisbane so you know, I look at that and I think, well, that changes uh, the demand for housing and how we consume homes because it is that family home. You know, often, um, you know, they're prime in their working life, but they have children in tow. So, you know, it speaks to why we've seen such strong levels of demand for housing. It also kind of answers that question of terms of affordability and lifestyle. I think, you know, we've all experienced a very unusual world over the last 18 months, and it's been a time where we've all re-evaluated where, how and where we're living our lives. And I think that's why we're seeing such big shifts in, in demographics um, and that movement of Australians, which, let's be honest, doesn't really happen very often. So, you know, I think Brisbane is definitely one to watch. I think the fact that they've also won the uh, Olympics bid as well, mm. there's lots of government uh, money being spent, you know, not just, uh, and that will be delivered, you know, all of these infrastructure projects need to be delivered to, um, in order to deliver the Olympics. So I think what we're likely to see and what we, what we know happens with big projects like this, it's not the Olympics itself, it's the lead up into the Olympics that creates uh, the extra demand for housing through workers. You know, there's um, going to be uh, tens of thousands of jobs created as a result of the work that needs to be done uh, for the Olympics. So I think there's lots of reasons why uh, the spotlight will be on Queensland. Yeah. Okay. Now, I want to start in Brisbane and end up in an area that you started talking about, the fact that house prices are going faster than apartments. Uh, a few years ago, Brisbane had an oversupply of apartments around the river, around the CBD, and that was a big problem for, for Brisbane. 
what's happened to that oversupply problem? Have they been you know, taken up? Are they starting to rise in price? Has that malaise been sort of unwound by the unusual circumstances we've lived through over the last few years? Yeah, so I mean, it, obviously that oversupply was really concentrated in the CBD and what we saw was it then had this ripple effect and impact on other areas, um, unit prices in other areas, because it meant that homeowners could afford something closer to the CBD because we saw that oversupply of inner city apartments really disrupt the price point for units in Brisbane. We haven't quite seen uh, growth as yet, but we're certainly seeing the market trying to find a balance. So overall unit prices in Brisbane, they remain below uh, their prior price peak, but they're getting close to it. There's only $19,000 needed on the current median to surpass that prior median. So, you know, we're almost at a new price peak ultimately. So I think that says a lot to the absorption of that oversupply in Brisbane. Okay. so. The, the re-arrival of students from uh, Asia in particular, is that going to help the likes of Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne? Because a lot of those um, people used to populate the, the apartments around the, the, the cities I'm talking about. Are you expecting by middle of next year, if we start seeing the comeback of students and travellers, that apartments become more valuable again and, okay, and the related question is, does, does it mean that they're probably a decent buying opportunity for the patient investor? You might not get the return this year, but if, if we assume a year after we're back to normal, will the, the, you, would you expect the value of the departments to start to come back? So I think we're already starting to see um, a little bit of that anyway. I mean, we've got a record price gap between house prices and unit prices in many of our capital cities. So that includes Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, Canberra and Adelaide. Um, so I think what buyers are now seeing is perceived value in units because they have underperformed compared to houses. So I think there is a bit more room for growth in units compared to houses. Um, I think affordability is becoming a restraint for buyers, for those owner-occupiers as well. So I think, you know, in some of our markets, we're seeing buyers shift to a unit because they're just literally priced out of a house and they want to stay in their location. Northern Beaches is one of those examples that, you know, where we've got record high house and unit prices in Northern Beaches. And, you know, you should see that shift to property type, but not shift of location. But also we've got the resurfacing of investors. And one of those um, uh, things to Brisbane as well is we have got an increase in investment activity here, you know, across uh, Queensland. And, you know, most of that will be to, uh, directed within the Southeast Queensland region. So I think there is perceived value. And I think when you throw in uh, the um, opening of international borders, we're already starting to see rental markets improve within our inner city areas and we know that those inner city unit rental markets were hardest hit as a result of the pandemic we've seen rental prices come down melbourne in particular still has quite an elevated inner city uh, uh, vacancy rate but we've started to see the rental market turn around in the even in melbourne you know we've seen rental prices start to increase in units in the inner part of Melbourne. So I think for investors, um, thinking about those returns in terms of, you know, the uh, rental returns, we, the worst is behind in, in our rental markets. And I think we're starting to see those vacancy rates tighten. That is going to become 
um, accelerated once those international borders reopen, because we know overseas migrants and international students, of course, they rent upon arrival um, and they tend to rent. You know, most of the inner city rental demand is sourced from overseas. So it's going to really help um, continue to recover those rental markets in our inner city apartment areas. Well, this week I was interviewed by um, uh, Lara Vella on the Today program, and she asked me uh, a question. I can't remember whether it was actually for the, the program or not, because we were talking about job ads, but she, she, she was probably talking about the price of trying to buy a house in Sydney as a young person. And I said, what I suspect is going to happen because of the, the house prices is that we're going to see a Manhattanization of a, a city like Sydney, where lots of people will just simply rent in the city. Um, do, do you think that's, and, and by the way, I also do think a lot of the office blocks will be converted to apartments because a lot of office blocks will just won't be required. Are you seeing or thinking that this might be a trend for Sydney and Melbourne, that there'll be a lot more people living in the city as opposed to office workers coming to the city? Yeah, look, I, um, my personal view is I, I, I do agree with you. I think that we are likely to see um, some of those. We're going to need less office space because um, yeah. I think we're not going to be spending five days. Well, some of us won't be spending five days a week in, in an office. So it might mean that some of our offices are repurposed for residential. Um, and I think, you know, affordability really is uh, and needs to be on the forefront of conversations because in our more, most expensive capital cities, it is um, impossible for first-home buyers to get onto the property ladder. You know, when you look at, even if they're aiming for an entry-level price, uh, an entry-level property, it takes, we've, we've done, we've got a first-home buyer report and it, it takes a couple on an average wage of a 25 to 34-year-old saving for a 20% deposit on an entry-level house in Sydney, it takes them over seven years. And that's for a couple. So imagine what that's like if you're trying to per purchase on your own. Um, so I think, you know, I, I think there's an element here of, um, and this is kind of social, you're going into kind of social changes. There'll be an element of our population that will want to be lifelong renters, um, you know, for the transient nature that rent, renting brings, you're able to move more easily. And, and obviously it's less upkeep if you're, if you're renting. But I think there'll be others that will be renting because it's forced and they're unable to actually afford a, a property. Yeah. I suspect there'll also be some savvy young people who will rent in the city and buy an Airbnb, a, a property out in like the Central Coast or Blue Mountains and put on Airbnb during the week and escape themselves on the weekend. That kind of thing will happen, but you can't do that en masse. And so my one final question to you is this. You're an expert on property. You watch it all the time. Where's the one place you'd like to buy because you think, A, it'd be a great place to live, but B, Will have fantastic capital gain in the future. Oh, so yeah, I, I, I rewind five years. This is a bit of a story, and I said to my husband, "Let's buy." I'd really like to buy in Sunshine Beach in southeast Queensland. Yeah. We didn't, and prices have gone up um, almost two hundred percent over five years. So that's oh. a, a very good lesson for my husband to listen to his wife. <laughs> 
<laughs> he was the no one and you were the yes one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so, I, you know, I think for me, you know, I, it, it's a lifestyle location, whether it's a hinterland or whether it's coastal. And it's looking at those that are perhaps a little bit further from the traditional hubs, you know, go that little bit further down. Like I, I always think, um, you know, I... Uh, Yorubadala, I don't know if you're familiar with Yorubadala down in, in New South Wales, you know, that kind of sweet point between um, that's a little bit too far for Sydney ciders to go, but is also that little bit too far for Melbourne people to come to, I yeah. think, you know, it, it offers affordability and we've seen prices rise extraordinarily around all of our coastal markets, but I think for me, it would be a coastal area or a hinterland area close-ish but far enough away from a, a major city yeah yeah i, I can see the the good sense in that nicola powell <laughs> thanks for joining us on the program thank you for having me i'm talking to michael green head of tenant representation australia for jll and uh, we're looking at a very interesting issue that australians as they exit lockdowns and they're starting to return to work um they may well have changed a bit. There may be changes that employers have to be aware of. Michael Green, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, Peter. In a nutshell, what has this survey found? Uh, it found a number of things. And one is that whilst people are in some ways happy to return to work, there is also some reluctance and a number of things that they are concerned about. And some of those things have been people are now starting to find it a bit tiring to be at work. 36% of employees feel a lack of energy while working. More than a third feel disenchanted and 30%, 37% are lacking energy and motivation. So what this is saying, Peter, is that employees have to put better support around their employees as we move into this new way of working, this hybrid model between home and office. Mm. So, so why is JLL interested in this subject material? So JLL is a diverse firm. But one of the biggest things we do is occupiers. So I and my team advise them on finding space and getting the right space. But we also have a large team of people who manage property portfolios on behalf of occupiers all the time. So we're heavily invested in the future of work and the sort of workspaces that will resonate with clients to get the best uh, out of them, out of their employees, provide the right working environment. So I guess in a perfect world, um, JLL would have preferred no coronavirus and no change in the attitude of employees and their willingness to generally go to, uh, go to work in office blocks where it's a fairly important uh, area for the clients of JLL. Is that, is that a fair call? Well, we are heavily invested in office space, yes. But let me just make a couple of points here. One, I don't think COVID changed. Well, COVID didn't introduce anything. Right. We were already on a journey to flexible work. Mm. So people, all of us had the opportunity and many of us had the ability to work from home at different times or work from third spaces. We just didn't choose to do it as often mm. as we might have. COVID made us all come to terms with that very quickly and also become very familiar with all the technology that supports us to undertake that sort of work. The question now becomes, what is the future of the office and why would people come back? And that's, that's what we're looking at moving forward. What does the office provide employees and their employers that working from home can't? And, that, and that's a whole range of different. Yeah. So, but I guess the, the, fair, the fair observation is that 
the coronavirus has escalated a trend. Oh, yeah, I, I think it that pushed was it forward. Yeah, it, it pushed it forward probably six to ten years in a very short space of time. Yeah. Yes. Uh, have you been able to ascertain uh, the employers' uh, a um, ex expectation that their employees would would be changing substantially, and their willingness to be flexible? Because at the end of the day, you know. I know this is you know, quite hard for many people, particularly in the media, to realise that bosses have feelings as well. <laughs> they've lived through a hell of a lot, and they've yeah. often they've often seen their their uh, revenue collapse, their profits collapse, and they've kept their employees on the on the payroll. Um, and and so the the new world um, comes with a new curveball. Their employees have changed. Yes, they have, and that that. That, that changes the management style. For a lot of managers, it was all about presenteeism. If I can see you and I know you're here, you're working. You're actually managing in a different way and interacting with employees in a different way, for sure. But, you know, depending on the nature of the organisation, some organisations have been very strict about wanting everyone to come back to the office. And other organisations are saying, you do whatever works best for you as long as you are productive. So those organisations such as investment banking, have said, look, we, we create stuff. I mean, we, we come up with deals. That is best done when we're in a room together. So we want our people back. And there are other organisations, and certainly parts of organisations, where you might be heavily process-driven. You don't need to be in the office to do that all that often. Yeah. So there's a bit of latitude for those people not to work at home. And there's some tech firms who say, you know, we support total flexibility. You can work anywhere. But there are also other tech firms who are saying, yeah, we want you back because it's a creative process and that's best done when, when we can be together. Yeah. So let, let's work on the kind of business that um, many of the employees can work from home and may, may well suit the employees. Um, but when they do go to work, that they are looking for something different. What is it you think they're looking for and what are... I guess, the, the more accommodating employers looking at to make these potentially uncomfortable staff members feel better about going to work. Okay. And again, it is about a comfortable working environment. So moving away from the concept of a regimented workplace where everyone sits in lines of white melamine desks doing exactly the same thing to a space that is more adaptable to what people actually go into the office to do. Because when I go into the office, I want to see my colleagues, I want to interact with my colleagues, and I want to feel comfortable and safe. So that means that the style of the work point has changed. It's acknowledging that, you know, I will spend time with my colleagues. I do need to sit down with them. I do need to have somewhere where we can interact. And it should be more comfortable. So it should reflect a warmer finish um, and a different look and feel to, a, you know, essentially an office factory. And also the, the, the latest one is, you know, health and physical well-being and what the uh, employer and indeed what the building owners are doing to promote that and help people feel more comfortable when they do come into the office. And, and really a reason to make the commute is the other issue. What, what, why would you make the commute if you didn't have to? So what does the building offer? What does the employer offer that makes it worthwhile as well? well what are some of the innovative things that... Um, office buildings uh, are offering both the employer and their staff that makes the, the whole office experience more enjoyable? 
Yeah, and there's been a big shift in this. So uh, we're seeing a lot of wellbeing programs. So we started off with end of trip facilities, but that now has expanded to you know classes. So wellbeing classes, uh, yoga, fitness classes, uh, programs. So you know, and some of the owners now have apps on that you join on your phone, and it gives you access to gyms or discounts to healthy food products, special offers, and so they're creating you know a whole whole program of offerings for the employees to use when they come into the building and that might be some of it might be in their own building and some of it might be in businesses around the other thing that the owners are doing for the, the firms that occupy the space is increasing flexibility yeah so it's very hard now to know how much space you want and when you want it so a lot of people will lease a core amount of space but the owner will provide some flexible space in the building so that was you know uh, previously through WeWork and others like that. But it means if I've got a large project team, instead of having to lease that space directly, I might put them into that into that flex space for a period of time. Or I don't carry large training rooms in my space anymore because we will do that in a flex space in the building. And that might be controlled by a third party provider or by the landlord themselves. So they're making it easier for the, uh, the firms to use the building in a way that suits what they're actually doing. Are you finding that the, the bigger organisations that may well be able to bear the costs of this kind of employee innovation are finding it easier to do than, say, the, the, the mid-cap company that may well not have the, you know, the, the revenues and the economies of scale to, to easily afford these kinds of, you know, can be expensive innovations. So, yes, major employers that the big banks, the government do a lot of these programs themselves. Mm. But that's, this is where, and this is almost a perfect match, Peter, because this is where a lot of the landlords are stepping up and saying, I'll provide that as part of my base building offering. So you will, you know, you will pay for it through the rent, but it's a program that you and a number of other tenants in the building can take advantage of. And as a smaller tenant or a medium sized tenant, you don't need to do it yourself. You know, we will provide that and, and you can take advantage of it. So it's, uh, it's a good example of, of two parties coming together mm. and the, the, the landlord providing space or providing programs that suit the tenant. And of course, for, for the owners, it's attraction. I mean, they want to attract and retain the tenants they've got in the building. So this is something additional that they can provide that will hopefully keep tenants or attract tenants to their building. Yeah. So I guess the, the presumption is that if you've got a given building and as a, a landlord, you, you offer nothing different as a consequence of the, the coronavirus period. There's a good chance that you may well, A, lose tenants, uh, and B, there'll be a, a strong argument for reduced rents if, if the tenants want to stay. The flip side will be if you're innovative and you offer um, innovations that really make it better for the owner of a business to get their employees back to work, then they would be willing to pay for that kind of um, changed uh, offering? It is a very competitive market at the moment. So there is high vacancy in many of the state capitals. Incentives have gone up. If you're just offering a generic product, you're only competing on price and there is plenty of competition out there. So mm -hmm. tenants, are, are employees are aware that their employees, sorry, employers are aware that their employees are demanding more. So if I can find a building that offers all of that plus has a competitive deal, I'm going to take that over a plain vanilla building that's cheap any day. Mm. Yeah, the, the world's become 
one where the experience is really important. We saw it with the, the retail. When retail was challenged, you say, a decade ago, shopping centres had to become experience offering uh, organisations. And now the workplace is going to have the same kind of um, uh, imperative place upon it. As someone said, we're all curators now. We have to curate an experience. And when you look at the report, you know, the expectation of access to services and amenities, the top three are relaxation spaces, healthy food services, and outdoor spaces, mm. which you can easily get at home. But how do you create that in the office to get people to come in? And that's where that, that landlord offering is key to help with that sort of enticement. Well, Michael, it looks like um, as our employees change, we, the employer, has to change as well. Absolutely. Michael, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Good to be here. And one final question. Where can people access the full report? Uh, if they go to www.jll.com and type in the name of the report, which is Regenerative Workplace, they will find it there. Great. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that was Michael Green of JLL. Thanks for joining us on the program today. If you want to know more about us, go to switzer.com.au. Once again, thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week. Thank you.